Amen. Good morning, Cross Point. Hope you guys are doing well as we continue following Jesus together through the Gospel of Mark. So if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We are going to be continuing by looking at verses 21 through 43. And we're kind of in the middle of these four stories that have been put together. So where we've been is we've seen where Jesus was teaching parables. And then that night he got into the boat. And this is what we talked about last week. And, and, and as they were going across to the other side, the, the disciples, the, there was this storm that came and they began to doubt God's care for them in the midst of the storm. And they're like, God, don't you care? We're, we're perishing here. And then God rebuked the wind and the waves. He spoke to the the faith and need in the disciples. And then they got to the other side, and as soon as they land on the other side, this demon-possessed man with a legion, numerous, numerous demons possessing him, came and threw uh, the man at Jesus' feet, and Jesus delivered that man by casting the demons into the pigs on a near hillside. Now they get in the boat, and they come to the other side. They come back to Capernaum where Jesus has spent much of his ministry. And as soon as they hit the ground, immediately crowds are around Jesus once again. And in the story that we're going to see today, it's two different stories tied together by this bond of desperation. It's the same thing we talked about a few weeks ago, this intercalation, this great word that means a story sandwich. Like story one begins, but then it pauses Story two is told in full, and then it comes back at the end to resolve the first story, showing us that these events are meant to go together to help us understand one overarching truth as to what Jesus is doing. But here's the thing, it's not just a snapshot into these two lives, these two women from opposite ends of society, one from high society, the other being rejected on the fringe of society, pushed away. And it's not just a commercial. It's not just this short little story into their lives. But it's as though it's been 12 seasons in the making, filled with episodes of rising expectations and then crashing defeat. 12 years of a little girl's life, having grown up in high society and privileged. 12 years of shame, of being pushed away, like waves crashing over your heart, sinking you into a deeper and deeper despair until this moment, in this moment, as these two separate lives come together in a single afternoon, tied together by the mercy and grace of Jesus. These stories will be forever told together. So let's pray and then open God's Word. Lord, I thank You. I thank You for this time that we have together this morning to to lift our eyes and to worship You together in song, Lord, to open Your Word and humble our hearts before You. Would You speak? Would You lead where You encourage us where we need encouragement, Lord? Would You convict us where we need conviction this morning, Lord? Would You renew 
and guide by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Do more than my words could ever do for the sake of your name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse 21 of Mark chapter 5 with me. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. And seeing him, he fell at the feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little girl, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. This is the first part of this story sandwich. This father's pain for his only daughter, Luke tells us. Can we just walk in this man's sandals for a moment? Just to understand this isn't just a moment that has happened. A day that wasn't going well, and Jesus, can you help me through this day? This was 12 years in the making, a story that started with great joy, a father's pride to be the daddy of a princess, the only daughter, the Gospel of Luke tells us. He counted her, her fingers and toes, held her body in the palm of his hands, looked at every curved increase in her sleeping face watched her grow, watched her coo, watched her crawl, watched her walk, held her hand as she twirled in, in her favorite dress. Sure, she was strong-willed, disobedient, right? Like every child, but it was his disobedient little princess. Watched as a personality formed as she grew into the woman that she would become, as her features were just beginning to release their childlike aspect. That day came when she fell sick. And then a day turned into a week, and all of a sudden, the, the life, the joy, the, the potential seems trapped in this frail, weakening body. This little girl sick, dying, the despair, the desperation. He tried everything you have to imagine. He's a ruler in the synagogue, right? He's praying. He has the synagogue praying. He's, he's talking with doctors, but nothing's working. And I, I wonder how long he had to resist the thought to go to Jesus. Think about this for a moment. Where we've been in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been ministering in Capernaum, where Jairus is a leader in the synagogue. Right? Can he really go to Jesus at this point? What are the religious leaders from Jerusalem going to think? What are the, the other people who go to the, the synagogue think if he goes to Jesus and asks for healing after everything that they've said and done, after all the accusations, after all the mockery, can he really go and now ask Jesus to heal his little girl? Jairus would have been there when Jesus on the Sabbath healed the man with the unclean spirit. 
He would have heard the stories as Jesus returned to to Peter's mother-in-law's house and healed his mother-in-law as people came in the evening, as evil spirits were cast out, as people were healed. But this began to draw a crowd, and then religious leaders came. They began to watch. They began to listen. And then Jesus blasphemes God. He claims to be God. He he claimed that he could forgive the sins of a paralyzed man. But then he healed the man. Didn't he? I mean, the religious leaders from Jerusalem, those professors, they were saying that he's possessed by an evil spirit, that, that it's Satan himself who's empowering him that he's blaspheming God, that he doesn't fast like us, he doesn't worship like us, he doesn't celebrate the Sabbath like us, but but I've seen him heal. What desperation would have arisen in his heart? And so he went and did what only he could do. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and said, my little girl... My daughter, she's sick. Would you? Would you lay your hands? Would you heal her? Here's what stands out to me. I think even in this first part, an application I want us to feel in our hearts is this. That God is merciful. Think of His mercy in this moment. He does not mock this man's despair for having rejected him earlier. He doesn't withhold himself out of spite, saying, don't you remember? You, you, you didn't stand up when the, the scribes were accusing me of being possessed by Satan. He doesn't resist mercy When we come to God in our desperation, we are met with mercy and grace, not with everything that we've done before. That is the mercy of God, isn't it? That Jairus could throw himself at Jesus' feet and just say, my daughter, my little daughter, do you hear his cry in that? What all pride he had to lay down as he fell at Jesus' feet, and then to be met with mercy. And here's the thing, Jesus immediately went with him. I mean, that's what it says. When it says that he immediately left, and he went with him, this was instantaneous. It's like, let's go. And so now that they're moving, and this is where we kind of transition from the first part of story one, this event that's happening, and now moving into story two, because as they're walking, a great crowd followed him and and, and were thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. See, among the crowd, following along with Jesus, I almost imagine this crowd of people like a school of fish walking on land moving together as Jesus moved, right? And in that crowd was this woman, desperate, desperate, making her way. She had one objective, just 
to get close to him, just to get close enough to reach out and grab in her hand his garments, the linen. There was a superstition at the time that if someone had power, that power was transferred to their clothes. And so if you could just touch even the garment, of the garment, you would receive some of that power. And so that was her only hope in that moment, just to get close enough, just to stay hidden, keep your head down, don't let anybody see you, get close. And so little by little, she made her way closer and closer until she reached out and grabbed hold of his garment. And it worked. It worked. She was healed. In a moment, I can only imagine the, the elation in her heart as she lets go and tries to slink back through the crowd, turning away to make her escape when all of a sudden everything stops and closes in. Jesus has stopped walking. The crowd that was following so close squeezes in. The pathways you were trying to make between the people are now inescapable. When you hear his voice, who touched me? And she knows it was her. The, the disciples are indignant. What do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. Don't you see all these people around you? And you're asking who touched you? But who touched me? And I imagine as it says, Jesus is scanning the crowd, knowing where she is, this woman who desperately, desperately wanted to remain hidden. Her shame, hidden. What she had done, hidden, is now being called out into the light, and she turns. And at some point, their eyes meet. Tears falling down, warm cheeks, a heart that begins to race, a body that's trembling, it says. And as she comes and stands before him, her knees buckle, and she falls to her knees under the weight of everything. And it's here that it seems as though her words began to roll off her tongue like the water falling off the edge of a waterfall. Her story, her truth, 12 Years, 12 long years that the path to womanhood became her prison, her shame. For 12 years, her menstrual cycle did not end. It was not a cycle coming every month throughout. It became a bloody, constant prison of condemnation. She sees Jairus, the synagogue leader, standing there with Jesus. A synagogue she wasn't allowed to enter. For 12 years, she was kept on the outside. 12 years as he raised his little girl in high society, lavishing her with his love as his only daughter, while she was called unclean by the law. Ritually unclean. It meant that she could not join normal social activities. She wasn't allowed in the temple. She wasn't allowed in the synagogue. She couldn't have physical contact with people. She couldn't simply, even in passing money, they can't touch. 
no less a hug, an embrace, an arm around the shoulder, lest it make the other person unclean. She wasn't permitted to dine with other people. Twelve years, she ate alone in solitude. She couldn't marry. She couldn't have sex. She couldn't have children. Twelve years. And she tried everything. It says that, that all of her money to doctors, and, and it's the craziest things that, that the doctors would have you do in that time to try to get healing. And at many times, the cures were worse than the disease. It took all of her money and all of her hope until she was left with absolutely nothing. And in desperation, she was reaching out to Jesus. And so she lays out her heart and waits. What will he say? How will Jesus respond? An unclean woman touching Jesus. Will she be judged? Will she be rejected? Did that make him unclean? Will he not be able to heal Jairus' daughter? The questions would linger until she hears the words, daughter. Daughter. She wouldn't have known this, but this is the only time in all of Scripture that Jesus refers to another woman as daughter. See, it would have been appropriate in that context. It would be like, ma'am or miss, ma'am, your faith has healed you. But that's not what he says. In the presence of Jairus, he says, my little girl, my daughter, your faith has healed you. The embrace, the warmth to be forgiven, to be seen, to be given honor. I can't imagine I cannot even begin to imagine what that must have felt like in her heart. To hear those words in that moment after you've laid your soul bare before God. And then Jesus says this. When he says, your faith has made you well. Like, can we just think about this for a moment? Like, really? Her faith? Like, how would we understand her faith from a human perspective? Because one commentary said this. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Mark, says, The woman's faith was at its core an ignorant faith. We don't probably like to talk about her faith in this way. She sought a cure that was essentially magic secured. It was a superstition that by touching the edge of his cloak, she would be healed. It was a superstition of the day. She had no idea that Jesus would know anything about what she did. She thought she could approach Jesus, take healing from him, and leave, and no one would be the wiser. Her faith was uninformed. It was presumptuous. It was superstitious. But it was real. And Christ honored her imperfect faith. Your faith has made you well. See, it was not the amount of her faith. It wasn't the degree of her faith. It wasn't how theologically informed her faith was. It was the object of her faith that saved her, that she had placed her faith on Jesus. 
And he took her where she was at, called her daughter, and made her whole. Think about what this means for us. To the theologically uninformed, to the selfish, to the superstitious, to the person who comes to Jesus because they want something from him and don't actually know that what they truly need is Christ himself. And it was a faith that still pleased God. And there's two applications I want to highlight in this middle story. And the first one is this, application number two. We are sick and in need of healing. Like, do we feel this? There's something in our own stories that should resonate with this woman. In 12 years, her pain, her shame, it represents all of us. That if we're truly honest in approaching God, we are all sick from sin, held captive in bondage to sin and death. And we bankrupt ourselves. We bankrupt our, our, our morality. We bankrupt our hopes in trying to seek cures that the world offers us. Distractions that only lead us into a deeper and deeper desperation because they do not work. They merely rob us of our dignity. They rob us of hope. Until we come in desperation, throwing ourselves at the feet of Christ, not necessarily having all the answers, but saying, Lord, I am sick and in need of healing. Lord, would you heal? We need only to reach out in faith to Christ. It is the object of our faith that saves us. And this is application number three. An imperfect faith in Jesus still pleases God. Didn't this give us hope? Like, he said to this woman, your faith has made you well. But when you look at her faith, you're like, was this like faith? Like, how would we understand this faith? Faith is not just for theology students. It's not just for pastors. It doesn't mean that theology and deeper study is wrong or bad. It is meant to fuel and deepen our roots into understanding the mercy of God. It should lead us into a deeper repentance. But faith that merely is desperate and throws yourself on Christ is still pleasing to God. A multitude was swirling around Jesus, pressing against him, and yet the imperfect faith of this un ritually unclean woman was found pleasing to God. St. Augustine, an early church father, said this, flesh presses, faith touches. See, it's this idea that in our flesh we push against God. We press and demand and want. But faith reaches out to touch, to be received. In the case of a million hands, Christ will see that one hand reached out with a childlike, desperate faith. 
and say it's pleasing to him. It's not the degree of your faith. It's the object of your faith. What are you trusting? In yourself? In your own knowledge? Or are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? And then it picks up where it left off. In verse 35, while he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Can you imagine Jairus at this point? Like, why didn't the woman stop talking? Why did she have to come today? What if we had just made it to the house earlier? What if I had swallowed my pride earlier and come to Jesus before? Why did I have to wait? And now my little girl is dead. Sick people get well. But dead people don't rise. I imagine this father knew, thought he knew despair. But now, death is a finality that cannot be beaten. And then Jesus says, what? He says, do not fear, only believe. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but in desperation, okay. Jairus follows. All hope extinguished when this little girl breathed her last breath. They get to the house and there's mourners out there. Now, Jesus' words can seem cold, like, why are you crying? She's not dead, she's only sleeping. But the reality is, is these mourners, they're not family. They're professional mourners. They're people in the culture who would be paid because as a ruler in the synagogue, Jairus would have been from high society. And, and to show how much grief and love they had for their daughter, they would have paid to have mourners there who were crying and wailing to represent to the community how great. And so notice how quick tears turn to mockery to Jesus. They're wailing the death, and then Jesus says, she's not dead, she's only asleep. What do you know? We know death. This is our job. We mourn. She's dead. And Jesus sends everybody outside. Everybody but the, the mother, the father, Peter, James, John, they walk into the room and see her lifeless body. I can't imagine the weight of that room. It, if you've ever visited someone in the hospital, when you know the end is near, when you hold their hand and you say goodbye, And then when the goodbye is final and it just sets and then Jesus walks over to her and he, he takes her by the hand. A, a dead, touching an, a dead body should have made him unclean. And, and he says, Talitha Kumi, little girl, arise. She rises from the dead with such a simple gesture, simply taking her by the hand, little girl, 
a rise in life where there was only death. Hope where there was only desperation. The power of God on display, but so, so much more. There's something here I want us to see in this fourth and final application. Jesus makes what is unclean, clean. He makes what is filled with shame and He turns it into honor. There's something in these two stories being paired together. With the bleeding woman reaching out and touching Jesus, she would have been ritually unclean. This was known in the culture. To touch a dead body would have been unclean. What's happening here? There's something that's being told to us in these two narratives being sandwiched together. And I think some people feel as though their sin is too much for God. It's too great. It's too extensive. The list can go on. My shame is too great. He won't take that. That I am so messed up inside that if God were to draw near, I'm actually going to corrupt Him. And so I just need to stay over here being ostracized. Because nobody else accepts me, so why would God... And then we see God drawing near to the very thing that is called unclean. And He is not corrupted by it, but instead He transforms it. He turns death to life. He he turns that broken prison into a woman who is made whole and healed. He gives honor instead of shame. He gives joy instead of sorrow. Peace instead of anxiety. He changes everything that He touches. Even when despair is at its darkest, He brings life. I pray that this gives us hope. Like if if we simply look back on those four applications, starting with number four and working backwards, think of the story that it tells us. Will you come to God in your sin, knowing that He makes what is unclean clean? Will you come to Him with all your shame, with all your guilt, with all your sorrow, with all your despair? And throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus with an imperfect faith. Not once you have everything together. Not once you know more. Not once you have it all figured out. But today, now, with whoever you are and whatever you have, just say, Lord, this is who I am and what I am. I got nothing else. Will you bring even your imperfect faith and surrender before Jesus? Will you acknowledge your sin that you were broken inside? That the cures you have sought from the world do not bring healing. And there is something much deeper inside that needs to be healed that only Christ Himself can heal. And trust that as you surrender before God that He will be merciful will not ridicule, will not reject, 
but will be merciful. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word, for this testimony of your mercy and faithfulness, Lord. That when we come to you in our despair, that you would give us life in return. Lord, for those who are hurting this morning, I pray that you would give them the courage to surrender before you this morning, to bring their despair, their imperfections, their faults and failures, and just surrender, Lord, before you. Lord, would they hear those words, my daughter, my son. Lord, that you would call us your own because of the mercy of Jesus, because he died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we might be called children of God. Lord, would you renew us this morning? And in Jesus' name, amen.